Welcome to the Expat Empire Podcast, the podcast where you can hear from expats around the world and learn how you can join them. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for the 15th episode of the Expat Empire Podcast. Before we jump into today's interview, I want to give you all an update on Expat Empire in the midst of the current coronavirus pandemic. It is never clear what to say during trying times like the ones we are going through right now. I do not want to give any generic thoughts and prayers style statements that may come off as trite or insincere to the people who are really struggling around the world right now. I'm sure that most things that need to be said have already been said countless times by people who are much more eloquent than me, so I will just take a minute to speak from my perspective about how this crisis has affected the broader expat empire community. If you have been following Expat Empire on Facebook, you may have heard that we started the first Expat Empire meetup here in Porto, Portugal in February. We just had our second event on March 9th, and it was another great turnout with a good mix of repeat visitors and new faces. While we were still a little hesitant to shake hands, we were not generally too concerned about the virus at the time. When the night finally wrapped up after several hours of interesting discussions about people's experiences living around the globe, I left the event feeling confident that the group would continue to grow in strength and community over the next few months. All of those feelings changed very quickly. No events have been held anywhere in Porto since the following Friday night, March 13th, and the situation progressed to require a state of emergency declaration for the country on March 18th. Here in Porto, the streets are empty, and almost all restaurants and cafes across the city have closed for an indeterminate period of time. Pharmacies and supermarkets usually have long lines stretching around the block, with people standing at least one meter apart. We are still at the beginning stages of figuring out what this means for our daily lives here, and we are just as uncertain as the rest of the world on how the situation will develop in the next days, much less in the next weeks and months. As a lifelong expat, I know that wanderlust runs deep in my blood, and so the isolation and feeling of being stuck at home due to the self-quarantine can be difficult to deal with on a day-to-day basis. I wanted to release this episode about working around the world so that some of our adventure-seeking listeners out there can get a short escape from the boredom and monotony that comes with spending all day inside. Others may be thinking about using this unfortunate situation as an opportunity to make a significant life change and try moving abroad for the first time after the dust settles in this crisis. So hopefully, this episode will give those of you out there additional inspiration and energy to make it happen. If there is anything that we can help you with as you think about your next steps in your journey abroad, please reach out to us at expatempire.com. Whoever you are and wherever you are, please be sure to give and receive support from your friends, family, and fellow expats during this tough time, as we all do our best to navigate through this challenging situation. With that in mind, let's introduce our guest for today's episode, Derek Stratt. Following acquiring a taste for being abroad during a trip to Peru for his 30th birthday, Derek decided to leave the metropolitan jungle of New York City to pursue a simpler life abroad teaching English. Following a TEFL course in Peru, he has since worked in South Korea, Malaysia, Chile, and the UAE in a multitude of roles related to English teaching. Without further ado, let's start the conversation. Hey, Derek, thanks so much for joining us today on the Expat Empire podcast. David, it's a pleasure to be here on your first few episodes. Thank you. If you could tell me a little bit about your background, you know, where you're originally from, where you've lived before, and where you're currently living, that'd be great. Sure. I, I grew up in uh, the U.S. I from uh, New York and New Jersey, and uh, I've traveled around a bit. I've been living in uh, Korea, 
or I, I was living in Korea, Malaysia, Morocco, Chile, and now I'm currently in the UAE outside of Dubai. Wow, that's quite a lot of places, and I'm excited to talk about each of those. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we have time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so what was your childhood like, and were there any particular experiences that really drove you to wanting to see more of the world, to travel, to, and you know, particularly to live and work abroad? Well, I always had uh, a pull to, to go. I grew up in a small town in New Jersey, and I just always had a sense that there was more out there. And for me, that, that meant, you know, New York City. And I, I always thought I'd move to New York City, you know, and that would be the big, the big apple and everything would happen. And then once I got there, I said, oh, maybe there's a little more <laughs> beyond New York City. So I, I took a trip on my 30th birthday and we went to Peru, to Machu Picchu. And that was the, the, the trip that really set, uh, set me on my travels because I, I just said, you know, there's so much more world to see. I've got to, I've got to get out there and see it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And as you mentioned, first you tried, you know, moving to New York and getting that big city experience. Was there anything in particular about that 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 sort of over time made you realize that actually that didn't solve that yearning or desire for something bigger or crazier? Um, you know, going from a smaller city to a big city. I also had that experience, and I thought maybe that would solve my wanderlust. And I also found that it didn't. And I'm just curious about your experience and why that might be the case for you. Yeah, that's a good question. I realize I just jumped about 18 years on you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no problem. But yeah, it, it, uh, to be honest, it was, it was stress, the stress of the city that, that really did it for me. And uh, if I'm going to be really frank with you, I think it was more about trying to escape that. And I found a more relaxed lifestyle abroad in South America. So I think that looking back, it was a good thing to have that stress in New York. And that sort of rat race grind uh, propelled me to search outside. And when you decide to make that your next step, at least moving abroad, did you decide first to continue in Peru? Or how did you make the decision as to where to move first? And how did you make that happen? Well, I, I fell in love with Peru instantly. And of course, as I'm sure you know, travel and, and working abroad are two different things. So the travel side of Peru was fascinating and exciting. And I went back and did my TEFL certificate in in Cusco, in the same place where I sort of fell in love with the country. And yeah, so I started my journey there, but it was quite different when you actually start living in a place. And I learned that in, in a few weeks and it was, it was not exactly the same thing. You know, you actually had to make money. Uh, you actually had to function, you know, differently in this society than uh, if you were just a guy in a hostel, you know, climbing a mountain. Right. Right. So what was the process like to getting your TEFL certificate? What was required? How many months did it take? And, you know, what recommendations would you have for other listeners that are interested in potentially doing that in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. I I often wonder about that now as well because I did my TEFL in 2006. So at that point, it, the industry has changed a bit, uh, quite a bit since then. And any any basic TEFL could have gotten you a job uh, in in Asia or something. And now I believe the standard has gone more towards CELTA and the uh, Cambridge version of the TEFL, it's a bit more recognized in 
jobs abroad. So I'd also recommend going for a teaching certificate in your home country. That's That also helps a lot. I think TEFL is important, and if you could get TEFL, it's good. But if you're going to go now and decide, I would say go for the CELTA, and then also consider the teaching certificate in your home country. Those two things should be should be good enough to get you most basic ESL jobs abroad. Thanks for that information. So what were you doing exactly in New York before you decided to make the jump abroad? And had you ever considered teaching English abroad before? Uh, well, I was an actor in New York for eight years. And, and as you know, the old stereotype of actor, uh, you also are a bartender at times or a waiter. So I was pretty much living that Joey Tribbiani stereotype of New York actor. Uh, however, I wasn't. I started not to get as much work, and I came back from Peru and I found a ESL school in New York, and immediately fell in love with teaching these these guys in New York, who were all over from all over the world. You know, I had Peruvians, I had Brazilians, uh, Japanese, Koreans, all these multinationals in my class. And, you know, I felt like I was traveling again, but I just went to 28th Street and 7th Avenue in New York, you know. And uh, so it was then that I said, okay, this could be something. And and also, you know, I make this joke, but as an actor, you're, you know, as a teacher, you have a built-in audience and the they, they have to pay. <laughs> they, so as an actor, you know, you don't always have that built-in audience. So I think it satisfied a lot of the things. And also I was, I was doing good things for them as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And as you got your certification in Peru and you had that experience of being able to teach other students English as well, what, what was your actual first teaching job abroad? My first teaching job abroad besides the school in Peru, right, was Korea, South Korea. And how did you decide upon South Korea and actually find the position there that enabled you to make that move? At that time, South Korea was, I, I guess, I don't want to say peaking, peaking their golden age of teaching in South Korea was almost uh, almost over, let's say. And, and it was very popular to go there. So everybody was going there. And a lot of the classmates from my school had mentioned it. So I just went on. Uh, website. I can give you some links later if you like that that are helpful. And you know, saw a bunch of jobs in Korea, and I, and I applied, and I got lucky because I got one of the government teaching jobs. It was called uh, Gepic, and I'm not sure if they're still doing Gepic now. I can check for you, uh, G E P I K, and it was a very good job. And I got lucky with my school, and I had a great time. So it was really just networking, I think, in the. Once you get in the scene and you start doing ASL, you ask other teachers, and um, that's pretty much how it started. And that particular program, when you applied for it and got that job, did they help you out with relocation, with getting an apartment, and getting you know acclimated to the school life? How did that all work for you? Yes, that was one of the be- one of the best things about that job. They took care of the flights and the visa and the the housing and everything was set up. You were under the school and they had an orientation for us. It was, it was really well organized. And I, I, you know, I couldn't have been luckier in that sense where I didn't really, the only thing I had to do was turn up and meet someone and I had to sort of translate the Korean. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they wrote my name in, in English somewhat, so I got it. And uh, that was it. 
Were you able to pick up much Korean while you were there? Or obviously as an English teacher, I imagine most of your day was spent in English, but was that something you had an opportunity to do or an interest in? Yeah, I did. And I remember there was another podcast you had here for someone saying they learned uh, they learned English in Korea, correct? Mm-hmm. That right. was uh, I was listening to that and, and I had a very similar experience. And I agreed with that uh, episode as well because the most it's the most important thing I did was to learn Korean right away. I went to one of those speaking, they call them a speaking cafe. And you would partner with a, a local Korean who wanted to learn English. And you would essentially, you know, do a language exchange in the cafe. And it was like a club. So you, you made friends and you learned the language. And that was the best thing I did because I was able to assimilate more quickly into the, the culture. Were you actually making friends through that route and actually making local friends? Or did you make most of your acquaintances and, and close friendships through, you know, work or through you know, meetup groups or how did you actually build your network and community in Korea? Well, I, I was working in a school where I was the only foreigner. So I had, I had a forced, forced group of Korean friends there and I didn't have any other foreigners around. So I, I was forced to learn Korean in a way, which was a good thing. The groups and cafes was one way to do it. Um, at that time, again, this was 2009, so I'm sure it has changed a bit. It was, uh, you know, we weren't so much into the online meetups and things like that. It was more like if you saw a foreigner walking around, you you might strike up a conversation because the town, uh, the town was quite far from Seoul. For the town that you were placed in, was that figured out by the government's program or did you have a say in it? How did that work? That town was completely figured out by them. It was a program, so yeah. And how did you find being outside of the big city? Was that sort of freeing and enabled you to kind of, uh, I don't know, pursue a different type of life? Like you mentioned, getting away from New York and the big city, or would you have preferred to see some more of the activity and things to do in Seoul? At first, I I thought I wanted more activity, and I thought that I wanted more foreign friends, things like that. I would be a little envious when I, you know, took the long bus ride into Seoul and saw these groups of expats, but now... Looking back, I think it's the best thing I did because I really learned the cultures and customs and I was able to make some some decent connections with local Koreans. And I, I don't think I would have learned as much Korean as I did had I lived in uh, Seoul, you know? Absolutely. I'm sure it made you <laughs> be a bit more self-reliant and certainly gave you a different set of experiences than if you'd lived in Seoul where there certainly are a lot more foreigners, I would imagine. Yeah, and it, it was you know, the first few months were lonely and that was hard. But I think, like I said, looking back, it was the best thing that I did. Like, I think you said self-reliant. Yeah. I had to figure it out. You have to kind of look and say, okay, it's just me. Uh, I can barely figure out how to get order food. So, you know, what am I about? And let's get into that book that I wanted to do or write that you know, write that journal I wanted to write and all these things you get to do. Yeah, definitely. So how long did you spend in Korea overall? I was in Korea for two years. And then after that, you've obviously spent time in many other countries. And probably, as you mentioned, we can't get through all of them today. But in general, how did you think about making your move from one country in a teaching position to another one? How did you make that happen? You know, what was your process as you decided to move really across the world? 
Yeah, I I have a a bit of a different story there, and uh, I don't mind sharing it. But I did. I fell in love with uh, an old friend from home over email, and uh, so I went back home. <laughs> and this was the time I didn't even have WhatsApp at the time, so we were writing each other these love letters. And I said, "Okay, I'm going to finish my contract, and I'm going to go home to you know be with be with this girl." And we had just this this beautiful email romance. So it, it wasn't so much a decision on country. It was more just a, a decision of the heart. And um, so that's, that's why I left Korea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then from there, so you went back to New York, I guess. And, and what was your thinking as, as that relationship and your life developed from there? Well, when I went back to New York, we immediately met each other and and realized it was a mistake. Uh, it was it was one of those things where you know what did I do? I immediately contacted my recruiter. I said, "Can you get me? Can you get me back to Korea?" They said, uh, "No, you know, not right now because it's a process to do that." So, I uh, I repatriated for a bit, and I had the reverse culture shock going on for a while. And um, then a few months later, I found a job listing for this teacher trainer role in Malaysia and got that job and, and moved to Malaysia. And so in that role, you weren't actually teaching students English uh, as a foreign language students per se, but more as uh, more teaching teachers to teach, I guess you could say. Right. Correct. So it was a big jump. Yeah, it was nice for us. Yeah. What was that like, though, uh, moving from, you know, you really enjoyed being on the stage in front of younger students, but now teaching other other expats the the ropes it was fantastic because now we we did workshops and we didn't have the regular class schedule so it was a bit more freedom i like to think it was it was as if going you know go from high school and then you go to to university where you have a bit more free time you know your classes are 3 days a week as opposed to every day and so we had a bit more freedom we had bigger uh, audiences of adults which is always different because the behavior management's different and I loved it it was a it was a wonderful opportunity Malaysia was great yeah and so going into Malaysia a little bit so you you left Korea you had your experience there for a couple of years and got acclimated to that environment you went back to New York and had to readjust to the American way of life and then going to Malaysia which I, I suppose was maybe your first time there what was that experience like for you and how did you get adjusted and, and acclimated to that new environment I, I thought at that time this is this is a very interesting question because I always thought that if I changed the country I would I would change my problems or I don't want to say problems, but my, you know, things I didn't like either about the way I was behaving or myself or the way my life was going. I thought I'll just change the country and everything will be fine. And that was sort of my naive approach when I went to Malaysia. Uh, and I realized that, you know, you take the same head with you, you take the same person, the environment changes. But so it was it was good because I had the same patterns arise as in Malaysia as Korea, and this time I was able to say, okay, you know, maybe it's not the country, maybe it's me, <laughs> and I got a chance to work on them. You know, one of the examples I could give you was the uh, the lonely part of the in the beginning, and I think I had emailed you when we were talking before about three three six nine months or something, and what I realized was, and I don't know if this is for everyone, but for me. The first three months were sort of filled with adrenaline and excitement. You know, everything's new. And then the following three months 
were sort of the opposite because now it was nothing was new anymore, but I didn't, I didn't know anybody and it was a bit lonely. And so I found that pattern again in Malaysia and I recognized it. I, I said, okay, you know, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I need to just stick it out, do the things that worked in Korea, like finding friends, going to clubs and, you know, assimilating into the culture as, as I can to, and, and just go through it, understand that it's a process. And how did it adjust from the six months on and, you know, into your couple years that you were in Korea and now, now you've been in multiple countries for a couple years each? Yeah. I wonder if, if everyone has that experience. I'm sure it's not the same timeline, but I, I do notice that as time goes, the, the absorption into the culture becomes, you know, it's different levels and even so six months to, to a year was another experience for me. It was more about not being so lonely, not being so excited, but finding a middle ground. And then I think after I'm, I'm in a place about a year, I feel almost more of a, more like a local. Uh, and then I, I know where I'm going. I know where things are. I have friends that I can call for a coffee or, or, or a beer or something, and it feels more comfortable. So that was, that was interesting to experience that after a year and then going Malaysia, I went for a third year, which was, which was a whole new thing for me. Cause that was the first time I spent more than two years abroad. So was it because that experience working at that job was so positive or what about it made you decide to stay even longer? It was a combination of things. The, the job was really, it was a very good experience for all of us. I loved the country and we were making a good wage and the, the great thing about Malaysia is it's so centrally located to so many cool places, travel places in Asia, Southeast Asia. I don't know. Have you been there? Yeah. Yeah. And I completely echo the sentiment. Right. So I was, I was living in Malacca, which is two hours from KL, Kuala Lumpur. And, you know, I was on a bus or I took a car to, to the airport and I could be in in Bangkok or Indonesia or Cambodia in a couple of hours. It was great. So then you did three years there and you felt more like a local. Why did you decide to move once again? That At that point, actually, there was no love interest in New York. So <laughs> it was actually the contract ended and we we were done. So I finished my contract and I had a bit of savings. So I decided to one more time, uh, give New York a try and repat repatriate again. What did you find when you got there this time? Did you have some of the same readjustment challenges or did you find it easier now that you'd been away long enough? Maybe you'd gotten a bit homesick or something like that, you know? Yeah, I thought at that point I said, well, I've done now about five years abroad. Let me try home. You know, I missed my family. I have great friends at home and I, I I didn't miss so much home. I missed the people a lot. I wish they would just come to Malaysia. I said, you know, why don't you why don't you guys come to Malaysia? It's we can all live here, but of course, you can't uproot all your family and friends. So I thought I would I would give it a try. And at this point, I had um, done a really smart thing, which I would recommend to all your listeners. Is uh, I got my master's uh, distance learning while I was in Malaysia, so. I made good use of my time there by doing that program. So I left Malaysia with a, a good amount of savings and a master's degree. So 
I thought at that point, well, I can now I can go teach in a university in New York. So uh, I thought that's what I'd do. And and did did that manage to work out for you, or did you get attracted to yet more opportunities abroad at that point? Well, it did actually. I worked in a I worked in a university in New York. I worked in the City College of New York, uh, CUNY they called it, and or uh, sorry, City University of New York, CUNY. And the the thing I found out was that I mean I was an adjunct professor. But the perks were not as good as abroad. The, the pay was not as good. Uh, and uh, New York was more expensive. So those things that I got abroad, like uh, my housing, my flights, and uh, medical insurance, for example, I didn't have. And it, it became, again, a bit of a struggle to, uh, to make it. How, does, how do you feel about that now, looking back at it, thinking that it's actually maybe an easier and more comfortable life? living abroad as opposed to actually where you're from and, and even working at a university, which was your goal at the time? It's, uh, it's, fr- it's frustrating in a way uh, to me because I really do want to be around my friends and family. and I, But I also don't want to take a job that I'm not good at or you know, qualified to do, right? So it's, it's sometimes a a bone of contention between me and my family and friends. And they say, well, just stay here and get a job. And I, I get a little angry and I say, well, you know, fly me, buy me a flight and give me medical insurance and I'll stay, you know, and it's, it's not the right reaction to have, but I mean, it's, um, it's frustrating. So I, I don't, I really don't know the answer to be honest, but um, you know, something would have to change either the, the system there or my, or my, profession would have to change for me to do that now. That makes perfect sense. I can definitely identify with that. And there's even times where you want to say, guys, I've spent thousands of dollars coming back to see you every Christmas. Can you just come out here for a couple of weeks and hang out? Or, <laughs> you know, it should be more of a two-way street, but unfortunately, most of the people are back there. So you kind of uh, have to do it anyway. So as you saw that maybe that career and the opportunities that were available to you at CUNY were not uh, as attractive as you'd hoped. Did you take a look back at some of those job boards and and re-engage with the opportunity to live abroad again? I did. I did. And I was forced to uh, work again in a uh, bar restaurant when I was there because I I couldn't quite make my rent just from the uh, adjunct professor job. So uh, that really propelled me into it again because I thought at this point I was I was almost uh, 40 years old and I was bartending again. It's not what I wanted to do. And, uh, but you know, I'm grateful that I had it because it was, it was good money and I was able to support myself, but I I said, I got to go. So I, I applied for the uh, English language fellowship for the U S department of state. And, uh, it came, it came through after about two years abroad. And that was my sign to, to go. I don't know if you know that program. Do you know it? I don't. If you could tell us a little bit about it, that would be great. It's a great. It's a great program. The Department of State runs a fellowship program with uh, Georgetown University, and they do contracts for professionals. And I think the only the only requirement is you have a master's in your field. And so mine was education. So I was lucky I had that master's. And they offer ten month contracts to go abroad to you know, multitude of places. 
and work with their education systems to develop them. So uh, I I got that I got that job. I got the interview, and I just said, "This is it. It's time to go again." <laughs> what was it like to pack once more to move abroad again, especially after two more tries trying to make it in New York and New Jersey? At that point, I had resigned to the fact that I'm different. I'm an expat at heart, and I I felt good about really giving it a try for for two years again. So it had been two years. I think I think we said that, but um, my my family and friends were really supportive because they saw that I was not as happy, and they said, "Look, we love having you here, but not if you're not if you're going to be a, you know unhappy." And so it was a, it was easier to go that time, and and I felt like okay, I gave it, I really gave it a shot. I gave the repatriation a shot. Uh, I I read I read something when I went back after Malaysia that said, "Give it one year." back home before you make any decisions. And I think that's smart advice. They said, make sure you give it at least one full season before you decide to go again. And it's smart because you tend to want to jump back right away. But I think doing the full season get gets you acclimated back to home, you know, do the full cycle of seasons or, or holidays as you, as you do. And, uh, that was important advice. So I, I'm glad I did that. So where was the first location that the English Language Fellowship sent you? They sent me to Chile. Nice. <laughs> How did it feel to be on a completely different side of the world from your previous uh, living abroad experiences? I was elated because I, you know, that's where my journey started in Peru. And I thought, oh, great, I'm going back to, you know, I'm going back to South America. I can't wait. It was also a bit closer to closer to home from New York, not so much in terms of flights, but at least I was on the same time zone pretty much. That made a difference. Yeah, that helps a lot, I'm sure. And now that you were doing this for, I guess, the third time by this point, outside of the times when you moved back to the United States, was it easier? Did you learn any tips or tricks that made the process of adjusting to life in, uh, in Chile easier this time around? It's funny because I think I... I should have learned right at that point, but uh, <laughs> I, it was almost like I kept being reminded of, okay, just take it easy. You know, same exact thing. Three months, I was super excited. And then I was a bit lonely and I said, okay, I remember this. So I think it was more just a reminder and like, okay, I've seen this before. Don't react too much. I also had put in place some health and wellness things personally that I, that I used. I used meditation and sports, I think, is really important. I think someone mentioned that on your podcast too. And it's very important, I think, that I took these practices I had at home, that I developed at home, that I took them abroad. So it's almost like I, I grounded myself in these things that I knew worked for me and I could take them anywhere. So I felt, okay, I, I know a bit more now who I am, what what keeps me grounded, even though this place is wild and different, I can still, I can still, you know, center myself a bit, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose it goes a bit full circle to the notion that, you know, you are who you are, despite the location that you're in. So to that extent, you might as well continue doing the things that you love, even if the location changes. Was that your thinking at the time? That's 
Yeah, that's well put. Very well put. Yeah. So how do you, well, to the extent that you have to navigate the bureaucracy and legal systems of all these different countries that you've been in, is there, uh, I don't know, any tips or commonalities? Like, how do you think about dealing with visas, finding jobs? Do you, know, do you always get a job before you make the move? How does that work in, in, in your process? Well, I would say the one common denominator is, is that you need to have patience in all situations with foreign bureaucracy. I mean, even domestic bureaucracy, but it nothing runs like you think it, it should or does at home, right? So I think just entering it with a level of patience, sometimes you might go to the office and it's closed for lunch. And you just have to go the next day. <laughs> and and that's not such a common thing. And if you come from a place like New York where, you know, you get things back immediately. And so I think just taking a bit of patience into those situations will go a really long way. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And I've been surprised to find that pretty much every government system that I've had to deal with is pretty much equally slow. So <laughs> any any hope of moving to make that process easier and more painless has failed me so far, but I still somehow have some hope for the future. Well, I liked the, the approach the, the, the your friend from Berlin took, right? He just said he, he brings a pile of paperwork and keeps going in and, and eventually they approve it. So I thought that was a good way to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Sometimes you just have to overwhelm them and they just get so... Uh, flustered and and fed up with dealing with you that <laughs> they'll force it through and give you whatever stamp that you need just to shut you up. So you you adjusted and, and had a great experience there in Chile. So was that only for 10 months or were you able to elongate that? Unfortunately, the U.S. Uh, fellowship is t- a 10-month contract, yes. And they, they work. And if you do one fellowship, you go at the bottom of the pile for the next round because they like to have uh, new people come in. That's the whole idea of the program. So I found myself in a wonderful job in a wonderful country, but unfortunately I had to go with, uh, without hope of re- renewing that one. So uh, I had to move on. And where was next for you and how did you find that position? I actually took a break and I decided to just do a bit of traveling and decide what my next move would be. I found a great place in Ecuador where I did a work away. Do you know what a work away is? No, tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, work away is a really cool thing. I think it's workaway.info. Again, I can I send, send these to you in email, but uh, work away is basically like woofing. Do you know what woofing is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So it's a similar concept where you can go and offer work for usually room and board and go do something you're interested in. So I went to Ecuador and I worked on a a farm and did natural building for a month. And, you know, they, they gave me free board and we cooked all our meals from the farm. It was really cool. And I just had a a month to kind of decompress and say, okay, what's next? You know, where do I want to go? Yeah. That sounds, that sounds pretty different. (laughs) (laughs) Totally different. And I think that's good. If you have the means to do that in between jobs, to just take a little time and just reflect on what the next move should be. It, it, it helped me a lot anyway. How did that help you figure out your next move or, or like what sort of revelations or through your self-reflection, what came to the forefront as being important or helpful in your next move? Well, a few things. One of the things was I, I really liked that lifestyle and I thought, well, I would like to do this someday. I don't want to just be a teacher for the rest of my life. And if 
in order to do that, I need to actually have some real uh, savings and capital come in. So it almost made me, in a in a in a way, grow up a bit and say, okay, let's let's make this now your personal business. Uh, set a goal and make sure you have uh, enough money where you can actually do something like this: purchase a property and and start this kind of initiative when you're ready. So that propelled me to go to the Middle East because currently in the ESL world, the the Middle East is the highest paying gig you could get. So yeah, it's it's clear that that was definitely a big mindset shift for you and made your next opportunity a bit more clear given the entire world in front of you. It made it easier to narrow things down, I suppose. Yeah, it it was. It was a, it was an important time. Now that you're working in the Middle East in another English teaching job, uh, and you're thinking about the future and how you can build wealth in order to have the lifestyle that you want, maybe on one of those uh, natural uh, farms somewhere in Ecuador. What tips and advice do you have for our listeners about how they can best utilize their their salaries and and keep and put money away toward building toward their goals while they're in an English teaching job or just working abroad in general? It's it's a, something that I have surely struggled with uh, abroad is saving enough money. Um, I was never great at it. I always had enough money, but I would say it's the basics of saving is something my grandmother taught me is just pay yourself first. And I heard that in, from her a long time ago, and that's always rung true with me. And, and basically what that means is whenever you get your paycheck, cause usually on these jobs, we get paid monthly and that's, that's kind of a lot of money in one time. So you go, oh, well, I'll just buy all this stuff. And I think the first thing I do when I get paid is I pay myself. And what, what I do is I take that money and I put it into a savings account. And whatever amount of money you allot, it's fine. But make sure that that's the money you pay first, before rent, before anything. And then whatever's left, then you pay your bills, you pay your important things. And then what is it? what's left from there is your spending money. And this way, it's almost like you treat your, your savings as a bill. Because, you know, you would never like not pay your rent, right? But uh, pay, not paying yourself or your savings, sometimes you don't do that in the month. So I think if you, you know, just make that a priority and then you can extrapolate from there. Or I, I guess you want to do like the the big view instead, uh, the, say like the, the overhead view or the overview of what you want to save and then just break it down per month, what you need to put in per month. That's that's worked for me, so that I just know that the most important thing to pay is my savings. That's why I'm here. It's not that trip to Thailand that I want to take, or that cool new bike that I want to buy. You know, it's it's that's the purpose of being here. So, hopefully, that's that's some good advice. Yeah, definitely. I can see how that uh, would be very helpful to a lot of people, myself included. But as you think about as you mentioned, maybe that trip to Thailand or or another weekend getaway, is it now because you've been abroad for such a you know long period of time over multiple years and multiple geographies that you feel less compelled to you know see everything and travel to every country? Do you think that that's part of the change in your mindset toward that, or uh, you know do you think that you have this mindset toward savings anyway? That's a really a really good point and you might be onto something there because I think at this point I have seen over 50 countries and I know which ones I'd like to go back to 
I don't I don't have as much wanderlust now as I did, but I think now my my thing is more about having meaningful experiences in countries as opposed to just a quick vacation. So I'm thinking more long term. So I know I want to go to India, for example, but India from the Middle East is a three hour flight, a three, four hour flight, but I'm not going to go on a weekend. So I'm thinking, okay, how can I do India for four months where I spend, you know, a smaller amount of money and I get more for my, my time there as opposed to these quick flights back and forth. So I think that is true. I think that you're right about that. Yeah, because it's hard enough for me to put spending on myself first when I can think about all the cheap flights I can get through Ryanair here in Europe. So that's part of part of me asking is trying to give myself a break for <laughs> not always paying myself first. <laughs> well, the, if you have Ryanair, then that's a different story. <laughs> yeah, well, that's also true. <laughs> but don't you guys have good tra- uh, good train system there? Yeah, we do have a great train system as well. And uh, even coming for me from Tokyo now to Berlin, it's uh, just the wealth of opportunities for cheap travel. Of course, Japan has plenty of travel opportunities and great trains and everything else, but it is very it can get very expensive. Even just going across the country round trip could be, you know, $300 or something like that. So, um, and it's such a small country too. So now being here where, you know, I just got back from, a week in Serbia and I did Montenegro and I'm trying to like basically knock out a bunch of the Balkan countries and, <laughs> you know, but it's also not the most expensive uh, flight and not the most expensive country. So I'm not going to Norway every weekend. So at least that's how I mentally uh, give myself a pass. <laughs> well, it's enticing. And, and I got to be honest, I just went to Cairo last weekend <laughs> because the Red Hot Chili Peppers were playing there. So uh, I don't always take my own advice, but I did pay myself first that month. So I thought, okay, this is a, this is a ticket. I have to, I have to just jump on. So. Yeah. I don't blame you. That sounds like an awesome time. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was worth it. So is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before we wrap up? Well, I just think that if you have, if there's somebody out there who thinks that they, they want to explore this life. It's a great way to see the world and also make money and, you know, not. I always looked at teaching abroad as a way to travel without watching my savings go down. Instead, I watched my savings go up, and I think that's it's a different type of travel. You learn, you learn different things, but in the end, you get usually a, a good bonus, and you get some time off to travel in between, and you learn some things about yourself. So I would just say jump. Uh, if there's any, if there's any feeling like I might want to do it, or maybe I should, I would just say jump, do it. And also make sure that you don't quit your job before you get, (laughs) before you get the contract back, because it can take a long time. No, that's good advice. (laughs) What I mean by that is don't quit your current job in your home before getting a, uh, I've done that before. And that's a bad move because they take a while sometimes. Yeah, that's good to know. So how can our listeners find out more about you and what you're up to? Well, as I, I mentioned in our first exchange, uh, I was inspired by your, your podcast. I was starting my own podcast called uh, Enlightened Abroad, and I was searching for the podcast the podcast network of expat podcasts, and I came across yours, and I said, oh, damn, this guy's got a great podcast. There's no room for mine, but um, I realized that it was actually a different approach, and so I was I'm super super thankful to you for having me on and also for being really supportive in 
fellow uh, podcaster world. So they could check out Enlightened Abroad. It's on all the podcast channels. Outside of that, um, on t- uh, Twitter and Instagram at Stratcast. It's my last name plus C-A-S-T. So uh, that's where I'm launching all of my blogs and podcasts from. So I used my last name plus cast instead of podcast. I like it. (laughs) Thanks. I'll be sure to put links to it in the show notes and definitely appreciate somebody else trying to take on the world of of expat podcasting and uh, and getting the word out about the great life that we have out here and the opportunities for people around the world. So yeah, I'm happy to uh, share that also because it's more about uh, searching for meaningful experiences, uh, spirituality, things like that abroad. And uh, I have some cool guests on as well. So I think it could be, uh, I think it's, there's space for, for all of it, you know? Absolutely. Well, look forward to seeing how things evolve for you and where the world might take you next. Thanks so much for sharing your experiences and your story and look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks for having me on. Thanks to Derek for sharing his story with us. You can find the full transcript from today's episode at expatempire.com. Music on this episode was produced by Eli Hermit. Please check him out on Bandcamp and Spotify. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and lets us know that we are putting out content that you appreciate. Keep up to date on new Expat Empire podcast episodes by pressing the subscribe button in the podcasting app of your choice. You can also visit expatempire.com and sign up for the newsletter to get notified about new podcast episodes and receive a ton of free expat and travel-related content. We're also on Facebook at Expat Empire, so be sure to follow us there. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode in the coming weeks. Thank you.